Well, as you study through God's Word, one of the things that you will never find is chaos. There's a lot of things described in God's Word that we may believe to be chaos, but there is never a time where anything is outside of God's control. And for something to be out of His control would be the definition of chaos. But instead, what we see from the book of Genesis to Revelation is God's order and the way that He structures all things in His beauty and design. We just sang an example of that. Where God created man and woman. That He created all of creation. He says that it was good. He created man and woman. He says it's very good. And the way in which He designed creation on each of those six days, was perfect and in order, exactly the structure that we would understand it to be in God's perfections. Matter of fact, if you look at human biology, you can get down to the DNA level and you can see that same rhythm and structure. There's not chaos going on in our bodies any more than there was chaos in creation. Because God is a God of order. And as God orders all things... In creation, you would understand Him then to order all things in our salvation and in the church. And so there's a process that we go through in salvation so that we see that consistently structured in all believers. One person can't say, oh, well, I was saved in this way. And another person goes, oh, no, no, I was saved in this way. It's structured and ordered and designed in God's perfections. And in the same way, He structures His church. So you come to a worship gathering, and you should expect what you've seen throughout the pages of Scripture, order, not chaos. And sadly, that's what you see throughout history in many churches, chaos. As we've been talking through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have referenced a very challenging topic on spiritual gifts. And we've referenced the idea and the reality of such a disorder that exists in churches today. It's not any churches that I've ever been in, but it doesn't take much to search on YouTube and find examples of such chaos going on. Chaos in the sermon, chaos in the worship. No order, no structure, no focus on God. It's just being led by emotion. It's being led by um, uh, the, the human experience. It's not given, uh, there's no structure and there's no design that's purposeful. And so today we're going to talk about disorder and worship. Because that's Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 14 as he talks about tongues, which we have spent some time talking about. There's a lot to learn about this, and if you've missed some sermons, I would encourage you to uh, go back and study and listen through those sermons about uh, tongues and prophecy. But let me give you the Cliff Notes version for you right now. We've preached, or I've preached through um, these chapters of 12 through 14 as Paul deals with different aspects of the church in Corinth in Paul's day, and one particular aspect was the way in which there was disorder in the church. 
There were, uh, we saw examples of disorder when the Corinthians were divided between leaders. Oh, I want to follow this guy. I want to follow this guy. There was some disorder when uh, the church in Corinth, they were allowing sin to remain and exist within the body. They weren't dealing with sin appropriately, seeking holiness. And now we come to the gifts of, uh, of the spiritual gifts that God has given the church. And most particular, the miraculous gifts that I have clearly laid forth for you as what I believe to be gifts that have ceased in the church today. They're, they're gifts that were useful in the early church time to authenticate the message of the apostles and the prophets. Gifts such as healings and miracles and speaking in tongues and prophecy. Prophecy be me, meaning like direct revelation from God given to the people. Okay? And the reason we don't need those anymore is because we have God's Word. We have it in completeness. It's been authenticated in Christ. We don't need these things anymore because God is not giving us new directive. He's not giving us new revelation. We have a lifetime of study right here. And that's what we should be, that's what we should, we should be satisfied in. Okay? Well, we still have to deal with these passages. We still have to learn from them. One, because the lessons of Corinth teach us in the church today. And while these gifts are not practiced today in the church, definitely not in this church, we can still learn, well, well, Lord, how can we learn from this situation in Corinth so that we might be a church that's a church of order and not of disorder? And there's a couple aspects in this passage that I want us to, uh, to think about as, as far as um, us seeking order. Now, I've already told you that the reason that Paul writes this letter is because of the disorder, but he's seeking, as we will see, that the, the purpose of the church being that we edify one another, that we're here to build each other up. And you can't do that when there's chaos and confusion. Okay? And maybe you've been to a, 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 a playground recently, and you've, you've gone and you've taken your children or your grandchildren to the playground at the park, the community playground, which is a great example of what? Chaos. Right? There's no order. There's no structure. Nobody's getting up on the slide at the, in, in, a, in a single file line at a similar pace. It's just, it's utter chaos. And parents just sit back and they're singing, swinging on the swing, having their conversations, completely and totally disengaged from the fact that those kids are living in chaos and are happy with it. We don't want the church that way. God has not intended the church to be that way. He wants us to be edified and built up, and order is the way that we do that. So it shouldn't surprise you that week after week, we have the same structure, and we have that structure here because we are trying to center ourselves on where order and structure should be centered on Christ and His Word. Right? We're not prompting you to emotion. We're not prompting you to experience. We're not prompting you to these things. We're saying, hey, let's read the Word. Hey, let's pray. Hey, let's listen to the Word being expounded and taught. Hey, let's pray again. Hey, let's sing some more about Christ. Hey, let's go home and apply these things in our lives. We're not trying to be redundant. We're trying to focus ourselves in that order. So Paul is dealing with 
these, this issue of tongues in Corinth because people in the church are not being spiritually benefited. It's, it's not beneficial to them to go to a church setting and experience what Paul is calling, which he doesn't use this word, but he's calling it chaos. It's confusion. And it's not edifying to them. People are not learning and growing from it. Well, what's the chaotic aspect? Well, here's another cliff notes for you. Tongues, as we learned last week, is the gift that the Holy Spirit gave the church whereby people would be given the ability to speak unknown languages that they did not know themselves in a way in which they were revealing truth about God in a language that they did not understand. Therefore, it required someone else with the gift of interpretation to then interpret what was said so that people could understand the revelation and they would worship. You might speak in, the, in, a, in a German dialect that nobody knows German. You don't know German. Therefore, the person gifted to know that dialect would then translate what was said and say, hey, this is what this brother was saying about the revelation of God, the, the goodness of God, the perfections of God, the sovereignty of God or whatever. Okay? Now, we looked back at why it had to be unknown languages. And, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to all that, that the, the God was doing and bringing about this gift. What was happening in the Corinthian church was this gift became a big badge of honor and pride. Oh, I got the gift of speaking in tongues. Don't you wish you had that gift? And what happens in that situation? Pride divides the church. Not only that, but people were not interpreting the tongues. And what Paul will make here is where the confusion and chaos came in is that people were speaking unknown languages. Nobody understood it. So it was just a matter of kids on the playground, chaos all the way around. And so Paul wants us to say, listen, the church is best served as structured and ordered because in this situation, we are edified and we are built up. I want you to look at these themes throughout chapter 14 with me. The connection between edification and order. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. Paul says, One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Notice the, the, the emphasis on edification. Paul will compare prophecy and tongues, and we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 12, so you also, since you are zealous or passionate for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church, the building up of members of the body. We're not talking about the structure, we're talking about the people. We're not talking about the building, we're talking about God's people as the church. Verse 26, What is the outcome, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Paul's literally laying out the structure of worship in verse 26 and then saying, let all that be done in edification. This is literally the order of worship in Corinth. It might be a little different today at Redemption, But the order produces edification. Look at verse 33. 
For God is not a God of what? Confusion or chaos, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So it wasn't like Paul was just saying, hey, Corinth, you need to be ordered and structured, but, if, but Ephesus, you guys just do your own thing. Now, all the churches, Paul instructed them to be ordered and not confusing. And finally, verse 40, Paul says, but all things must be done properly in an orderly manner. Okay? So what I want to start off with today is to think about the components of beneficial worship for each individual. Okay? I want us to think about what does it take for us to truly worship? If we're going to have an ordered worship, then all of us should rest ourselves upon these components that help us worship. Some people may say, oh, well, I can't worship if someone's not playing the guitar. That's not a component of worship. Because someone else is going to say, well, I can't worship if there's not an organ. I'm not talking about these organs. I'm talking about the, the pipes and stuff, right? And that's what happens in churches. There's division all the time. Well, I can't worship unless the, 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 there's warm lighting and not this bright, you know, horrible shop lighting that we have in here. It's a little too, a little too bright white for me. Okay. No, what we're talking about is what is going on within us? What are the internal components that we need to worship? Look at what Paul says in chapter 14. We'll start in verse 13 as we look at these components of beneficial worship. Number one, or verse 13, it says, Therefore, let, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For I pray in a tongue, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then, he says? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen in your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but in other, uh, the other person is not edified. I thank God, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than the 10,000 words in a tongue. Here are your two components for beneficial spiritual worship. You ready? Number one, the spirit. And number two, the mind. Okay, the spirit and the mind. Okay, now what Paul does is he uses language so that we understand that the internal components of any human being is both mind or excuse me, both body and spirit. All right, that is the view of what's called dichotomy. When God created us, he gave us this physical uh, uh, material being but then he also gave us this spiritual being, the, the soul or the spirit. Okay? So we have the mind, or we have the, the body, the physical, and then we have the spiritual. The body is the physical, the spiritual is our soul or our spirit. Well, the Bible tells us that in God's great order and design, that he forms us in our inward most parts, 
He knows us. He created us so that we're not just a body and we're not just a spirit. That we are both spirit and body or soul and body. But the problem is this. When sin enters the world, sin corrupted the body and the soul spirit. That's what happens to us. This is why we are set apart from God. Our body is broken down and weakened because of sin. That's why we experience pain and suffering and death. But the, or the, the spirit or soul is also affected by sin, which leads to our separation from God. The Bible says we are born into sin. That from the very beginning, because of Adam and Eve, that we are literally born into a nature of sin. Therefore, the body and the soul spirit needs to be what? Made new. It needs to be regenerated. Okay? That's the process that needs to happen. The lost world, the unbelieving world, is walking around in a corrupted body because of sin and a corrupted spirit because of sin. But here's what happens. When you are saved, when God transforms your life and and by faith you are given an understanding and knowledge of God and, and an understanding of your own sinfulness, when you come to see that Christ is your only way of salvation, the Bible says you are made new. And in the Bible uses words like your heart is made new. Right? Well, your heart is belonging to the inner man. And the inner man is that spirit or soul. It's all a part of you. So don't think that your heart is, is, is something completely different from all of your inner man. And this is what Paul's talking about. That the spirit that needs to be regenerated, needs to be made new, is invaded by what? The Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit indwells you at salvation, that is the key and the first component to proper worship. You know why we need that? Because without a regenerated spirit by the Holy Spirit, you would be mindless and disengaged in any worship service. You're going to be sitting there like any other unbeliever going, what am I doing here? Why am I not watching Sunday football? This is so boring. I don't even like to sing. But when the Spirit of God regenerates you inwardly, all the truths that you believe in Christ are worth your time as you sing about Him. You're like, man, I want to sing about Jesus. He washed away my sins. He made me new. So the Spirit is renewed at salvation by the Holy Spirit. This is the process that happens within us. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Listen to what he says. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Himself testifies with our spirit that what? We are children of God. There's the, there's the proof right there. You have the Holy Spirit bearing witness in like a courtroom scene that we belong to God because our spirit is invaded by the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. This is what Paul says to uh, the Corinthian church in chapter 2. 
Starting in verse 11, I won't read all these verses, but in verse 14, he says, the natural man, this is the unconverted man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or appraised. So first component, your spirit has to be changed by the Holy Spirit. Second, your mind. Your mind has to be regenerated. And the, and, the, and the thing, the design in which God has is that this is a process. We are continually in Christ having our mind changed and conformed. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. This is why when you love Jesus, you begin to love the things that Jesus loves and hate the things that Jesus hates. That is your mind being changed. The day you were saved, there wasn't a whole lot there. There wasn't a whole lot of change. You probably still, for weeks and weeks to come, wanted to do the things that dishonored the Lord, and the Holy Spirit began to show you how nasty and gross and detestable that was to God. And you began to listen. And you began to go, you're right, I, I, don't, need to, I don't need to live this way and, and dishonor the Lord this way. That's because your mind was being changed. Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The, perfect, the, the person who is saved has a worldview that begins to change. Their vocabulary begins to change. Their disciplines begin to change. This is what happens as the mind is made new. And folks, we understand that the mind is engaged continually in our Christian lives until we are deceased from this earth. Always learning, always growing until we meet death or Jesus in heaven. That's what happens in our person. So what does this have to do with worship? Well, because both have to be engaged. And the pendulum that we have seen in church history is is that some people want to swing all the way to the Spirit. And they say, I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit take over. And when the Holy Spirit takes over, man, I'm going to act in, 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 I'm I'm becoming like a trance. And in this trance, I'm going to do things that I don't even know I'm doing. And I'm going to wake up from this trance and people are going to have to explain to me what I've done. Folks, the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. Because Paul is literally condemning it in 1 Corinthians 14. He's saying, look, you have to worship in spirit and in mind. Both are necessary. So one one pendulum is go into this... Uh, this, this trance, the spiritual trance of doing things, as, so, as some people might say, that's full of emotion and, 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 and completely uh, undisciplined and disorderly. The other side of the pendulum is what? It's all mind. Where we're just trying to fill your brain with biblical data. And that leads you to correction and joy and application. 
Like we're just saying, hey folks, this is what you need to know about 1 Corinthians 14. Now go home and we'll come and learn about 1 Corinthians 15 next week. That's not what we're trying to do here. If you're not walking away challenged in your own personal spiritual Christian lives, one of two things is, is, is going wrong. I've gone wrong or you've gone wrong. Because the mind cannot be the only thing engaged in worship. So Paul says in verse 15 that tongues uninterpreted is engaging the spiritual aspect, but not the mind. Why? Because people that were not hearing the interpretation of the tongues were not understanding what was being said. It was useless words being said. They could not understand the language. So what does Paul do? He circles the wagons and he uses two examples. Praying with the mind and spirit. Singing with the mind and spirit. This is Paul's point that beneficial worship, orderly worship, calls for us to engage both spirit and mind. You know, I told you guys last week, I mentioned to you the sad trend in the church in the last 30 or 40 years that I was a part of where emotionalism wrote, uh, led the charge in churches. And I talked about the way in which you know youth group society and youth group emotionalism has now led to a, 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 a series of churches springing up just wanting the same thing. And one particular aspect of that that I did not mention is worship music. Worship music that's all about emotionalism. Worship music that's all about singing the same words and the same lines and the same phrases over and over and over again. And we don't even think about it. But that was the staple of the 90s and, and 2000s Christian worship music. It was called worship Praise music. It was singing praises to God. But it was literally so repetitive, it sounded like chanting. And the problem with it is that we didn't realize then, that we can realize now, is that it is rooted in Pentecostalism, Holy Spirit theology. It is rooted in this idea of the Holy Spirit needing to take over or hijack our experiences each week in church. Matter of fact, even now, there's a song by Bethel Music, Holy Spirit, come and dwell this place. Like what? Like He going to fill up this building? That's not what we're communicating from Scripture. That is something that people have created in their mind that the Holy Spirit needs to come and fill a building. Where is the Holy Spirit church. He is in us. And the only thing that can keep the Holy Spirit from active in our worship is our sin. Only when we come into this house and, or this building and we gather as God's people full of the Holy Spirit, only sin will keep us from our worship experience. We don't need to invite the Holy Spirit to come anywhere he is sovereign. He belongs everywhere. He doesn't need our invitation. Matter of fact, Scott Aniel comments. He says, 
I heard this statement, quote, our church's worship is pretty formal, but I prefer Holy Spirit-led worship, end quote. Annual comments, such was a comment I overheard by a young evangelical describing his church's worship experience, illustrating a very common perception by many evangelicals today. If the Holy Spirit actively works in worship, the result will be something extraordinary, an experience quenched, as these people believe, by too much form and order. But this expectation appears in more than just worship. If you're to ask the Christian uh, today, he says, what our expectations should be regarding the Holy Spirit's works. I believe most Christians would answer something like this. If the Holy Spirit is actively working, His work will be evidenced by some form of extraordinary experience, intense feelings, inner promptings, miraculous gifts, and visible manifestations. End quote. This is the, this is the pulse of so many churches today. And then churchgoers who come and learn from the Scripture and are challenged and have lots of notes that are going to go back and apply these things. And, and their children are learning the Gospel in classes and they sing deep theological uh, songs that help them think about the richness of Christ. Those people feel like they're going away with nothing because they did not have this emotional experience that so many people have convinced us that we have to have. It's silly. And it's unbiblical. Listen, we can have a proper Holy Spirit experience with order and faithfulness to the Word of God. He works through that. He works through God's Word. He engages the Spirit in the mind. Number two, the challenges in corporate worship. In verse 20 through 25, Paul gives some examples that are helpful to consider about the need for worship and order and the challenges that come about, especially in Corinth, but even for us today, in our corporate worship, our gathering together. He says, brethren, verse 20, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it was written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers or foreigners, I will speak to this people and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, Paul says, tongues are, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church gathers together and everyone speaks in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, they will not, will they not say you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he will, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, Paul identifies this challenge in Corinth. And the challenge is, is that in a worship gathering since the beginning, even in old Jewish, Old, old Testament Jewish synagogues, you always had those who were Jews and then those who were not Jews, they were like proselytes that had kind of, uh, uh, kind of affixed themselves to worship the God of the Jews. But they were, they were foreigners. 
and they would engage in, in some form of worship. Or in the church today, we have people that can walk through the doors that are both faithful believers in Christ and unbelievers. And that's the challenge of church. It's to try to uh, engage these people. And again, swinging the pendulum back and forth, the church decided many, many years ago to change their strategy to try to reach unbelievers in the church. But that's not the purpose of the church. The church is not to reach unbelievers. You're like, Pastor, you have lost your mind. No. The gathering of the church is for the worship of the Lord Jesus and the edifying of the saints. The mission of the church is to reach unbelievers. It's very different. But you all remember with me, what was it? Bring a friend day. Right? Bring a friend day goes against the very purposes of the church. We are not here to fill these spaces with unbelievers. If that happens, praise the Lord. Your job is not to invite your friend to church. Your job is to share the gospel with them and make a disciple of Jesus Christ to them. When they come to Christ, you bring them to church and they come with baptism and fellowship and community. That's what the church should do. We have turned church into a promotion uh, seeking ministry. We are just promoting ourselves. This is the challenge though. Now Paul gives us very specifically the challenge in Corinth that I think we can learn from. He says a very strange statement. He says that tongues is a sign for unbelievers. Very interesting. What is a sign? Well, we know very very simply, a sign communicates and points to something. Signs are not the thing. They are pointing to the thing. And so for Paul, he is using this uh, tongue speaking as a metaphor so that tongues are a sign pointing to something for unbelievers. What is the sign? Well, he gives us the answer. Whenever you go and read Scripture and you get to a passage quoted from the Old Testament, you need to stop, go in reverse, and study that passage so you understand what he's saying. Okay? So hold your place in 1 Corinthians. We're going to do that. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28. Indeed, he says, he will speak to these people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Why is Paul quoting this passage? Well, this is the answer to why tongues are a sign for unbelievers. So if we want to understand that, let's go back. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 5 through 8. Paul is, or excuse me, uh, Isaiah the prophet is speaking and ministering to the people of Judah. And as we know, by the time Isaiah is a prophet, the people of of Israel and Judah have lived this rebellious life against God. God is uh, bringing condemnation upon them because of their rebellion. The Old Testament proves this or shows this story of, of 
Israel, which eventually divides into Judah and Israel, and those northern and southern tribes both seek or both receive the condemnation and judgment from God for their disobedience and rebellion. In Isaiah chapter 28, the message of Isaiah to these people in the northern kingdom, which is uh, Judah, also called Ephraim, it says, In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment. A strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priests and the prophets reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter while rendering judgments. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Now, that sounds like a scene at the local bar, not among God's people and his leaders. So this is a condemnation for Isaiah. He's saying all the religious people... All the religious leaders in particular are so wicked and so rebellious that they are literally drunk as they lead God's people. And in their drunkenness, they are staggering, not just to stagger, but they are also staggering and rendering judgments about the nation and about God's people as they do it. This is just a scene of their reason for condemnation. Okay? Now, verse 9 in your Bibles, notice 9 and 10 are in quotations. The reason why is because this is the, the rebellious people that Isaiah is quoting. So they say to Isaiah, to whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from the milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. These words are scoffing words at the prophet. This is the type of ministry Isaiah had to lead. They're mocking him. Matter of fact, they're saying, Isaiah, your words are for mere babes. Don't give us, don't give those words to us in our maturity, in our, in our, in our, in our adulthood. And so Isaiah says, okay. And then he said, he states verse 11. Indeed, he will speak to his people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. This is a condemnation. This is a condemnation. Because you are leading your people in rebellion, Israel or Judah, because you are rejecting the word, because you think you're so adult and so mature, even though literally you are drunk as you lead the people and your tables are covered in vomit, the Lord will send foreign uh, invaders, people that speak a foreign tongue, and they will come in and they will destroy you and take you into captivity, that which remains, and you will not even understand them. Why? Because they had rebelled against God. Now, why does Paul use this? This is the challenge, but it should be pretty clear. Tongues that were not interpreted became a stumbling block or an obstacle, right? And the only way to 
understand the tongue was someone to interpret. So Paul uses this as a metaphor to say that the tongues were a sign of judgment upon unbelievers. Why? Because that's exactly what happens to unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot understand the revelation of God until what happens? The Holy Spirit interprets for them. So tongues is a, is a picture, it's a metaphor for what goes down in the, in the mind and the heart of an unbeliever. He comes into a worship service, he can't understand what's going on, he doesn't know why he's here, like I said. All these things are happening until what happens? The Holy Spirit opens their mind and their heart, and all of a sudden they listen. All of a sudden their ears can hear. All of a sudden, their heart rejoices. All of a sudden, why? Because the Spirit of God is their interpreter. But until that happens, signs, or excuse me, tongues is a picture of the divine judgment of God. Because unless God opens our ears, we won't hear. Well, that's not fair, Pastor. Are you telling me God keeps our ears closed? No, no, our, our ears are closed because of sin. Our ears are closed because of our rebellion against Him, which, by the way, we love. Which, by the way, we are satisfied in. We don't come out of the womb going, where's Jesus? I need some of Jesus. No, we're bratty and we're selfish and we want to do whatever we want to do and that just compounds throughout our lifetime. And only because of the grace of God that He allows us to, to understand the, the depth of our sin and the beauty of, of the cross and the resurrection, only then, by the power of the Spirit opening our mind to understand it, can we be saved. Tongues is exactly the picture of that. Tongues is a sign for unbelievers. And so that's the challenge of the church. We don't have tongues, but here's the challenge. Believers come in and they're edified by God's Word. Unbelievers come in, all we can do is pray that the Holy Spirit opens their minds and hearts to the Gospel. When you share the Gospel, all you can do is pray that the Holy Spirit opens their heart and mind with the Gospel. Paul was faithful to go to Macedonia and share the Gospel with Lydia, but what happened? The Holy Spirit had to open her heart to believe. Paul was there, he was faithful, Lydia was there, she was on a journey selling her materials, her purple materials. God uh, created this act of providence and, and, and circumstance for them to meet. She heard the gospel, she believed. Did she believe because of Paul? Kinda, but mostly because of the Holy Spirit. Paul was faithful to be there, Paul was faithful to share, the Holy Spirit opened her mind to believe. That's the challenge of church. That's the challenge of corporate worship. So here's the, here's the, the rub. Here's the, the difficulty for us as elders. Ways that you can pray. Pray with all intensity and fervor that we as elders would be rooted and grounded in this truth. So that we don't try to fashion our worship services and structure our worship services to appeal to unbelievers. That is the disease of the church. That is the cancer of the church today. Well, if I could just get them in. Listen, it sounds silly, 
But there are church staff wrestling matches at churches so that they can appeal to your entertainment value. There's no reason for that. If the Holy Spirit is true, if the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, we trust that the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, will do what is necessary. We leave the gimmicks alone. So pray for us. And we pray for you that you would desire these things. Things that matter. We pray that you would desire the things that matter in worship, which is being centered and rooted in the Word of God. That you would not look for these grand, mystical, spiritual experience. You would be satisfied in coming to church, hearing truth, learning about God's Word, being engaged in mind and spirit, knowing that it helps you grow in your relationship with Christ. You can leave all the rest as chaff that blows away in the wind. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, God, for rooting us in Christ.